Ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. And I think there is no business like aerospace where predictions on schedules and cost are so unrealistic <laughs> than this area. What we did, because with gliders, we watched Top Gun, and then on the next day, we were <laughs> flying away. So now <laughs> the grown-up people could see us and doing dogfights and so on. In the end, if you try hard, if you fight for something, then you can do it. If you look at today's aircraft, when everything is fine, then the aircraft are really simple to fly. But the qualifications of professional pilots are needed when things go wrong. When I was a student, uh, I had to buy lecture notes from the fifth semester to show to myself that it's really worth doing all the bullshit. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to another episode of On Air Actually Rocket Science, a podcast brought to you by the Student Council of Aerospace and Geodesy. My name is Philippe, and this is Paula, and we are honored to host Professor Florian Holzer for today. He is the head of the Institute of Flight System Dynamics. He is a control genius, a madup fetishist, and it would be an understatement to say an aircraft enthusiast. Welcome. We're very nice happy to be to here. Have Thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. So we always start our podcast with a bit of a game of this or that. I'll just give you two options, and you just say what what you prefer. Okay, first one, side stick or yoke? Side stick. Uh, fly by wire or mechanical? Fly by wire. Ailerons or elevators? Elevator. Engine failure or loss of communication? Loss of communication. Airplane or drone control? Airplane. Loop or barrel roll? Loop. Okay, so we are going to transition to the next section where we're going to talk about flight control because that's something you're very proficient at. And first thing would be, I'm currently imagining myself of being someone who has no idea about flight control. And I'd love to get your introduction to flight control, how you get someone inspired to learn about it. Because maybe people are unaware of it. Maybe people don't really know what it is. And we want to inspire some people to get into flight control. And what would you say? Maybe a crazy story or something that you think would be very important that people don't really realize that it's that important. So in the end, you want the airplane to go where you want it to go. So you need to have a way to influence where it's going. And of course, you want that it's uh, easy to do. And therefore, basically, you need people um, who translate the inputs that the pilot is giving in the cockpit to simple and intuitive motions that makes it easy for people to fly an airplane. And of course, in the past, you always had very professional, very well-trained pilots. And our big vision over the time is that flying becomes easier and easier so that eventually, hopefully in 10, 15 years from now, you don't need big training, you don't need a big pilot's license, but uh, it would be a matter of one or two weeks to make people fly airplanes. And so drones are a good example that it's going in that direction because in the end today, you can buy a cheap drone and really everybody can fly it. And why not do that for manned aircraft either? That's very true. Yeah. That's a really good point. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't mind flying. To be <laughs> um, okay, so before we get into more technical aspects, it would be good to just lay a bit of a foundation so everyone knows what we're talking about. Um, what, like, what are the fundamental concepts of flight control? What would you say? 
So basically, when we talk about flight control, it does nothing have to do yet with control theory or mathematics, because the really basics of flight control is, of course, moving the control surfaces on the airplane. So basically, the first statement is, you have something which you move in the cockpit. How does whatever you move in the cockpit make the surfaces of your aircraft, the elevator, the aileron, the rudder, or whatever you have move? And so... This is the very starting point. And then, of course, you arrive at the point where you say, okay, if the pilot has to move the surfaces all the time manually, then it's starting to get boring. So you fly from Munich to Los Angeles in 11 hours. But basically, a long-range captain is really using the stick in the cockpit less than two hours a year. And so, therefore, you want uh, to have something that is doing the job automatically, then you're ending up at the autopilot. And then, of course, in all the airplanes where you have uh, cables and push rods connecting to hydraulic actuators, things become heavy, things need a lot of maintenance. Then, of course, the next step is, why don't we do it electric? This is what leads us to fly by wire. And if you do it electric anyway, why does the pilot have to move the control surface? It should become easier. And this is then what many people think flight control would be, the algorithms come into play. But in the end, basically... I would say 90% of the aircraft flying don't have any active flight control system. And the first thing you normally have would be an autopilot, so you can drink a coffee, look outside, communicate, or put your finger in the nose, whatever you want. But uh, what we teach here in the lecture, in the basic lectures, is only these last 10%. Okay. So you would say that it's really about understanding the aircraft and how it behaves rather than Extremely complicated control theory. Yeah, because okay. first of, you know, in aviation, things, uh, especially in the past, have been very expensive. And so I think the best solution is not uh, the most sophisticated one, but the best solution is the most simplest one and the cheapest one that is doing the job. And so all the active functions you only put in when you really need them and when they have a benefit for the application you want. You put it like this, everything that is not there cannot fail. <laughs> and so it's always better to not put too many things there. But uh, thank for us, basically, or I'm happy about that. There is more and more application where you need the stuff. And this is good because it's paying my salary. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You were talking about failing. So is there maybe an aspect which is extremely critical flight control that people are not aware of, like maybe like sensor errors or something that are very common, people just never know about it? Or is there something that you would deem very important for flight control, but people really don't know about it? I think it's not a technical aspect, but basically um, the flight controls people and the aerospace people at all are a little bit paranoid, which you mm -hmm. after some time all also feel in your private life. Because if you look in other domains, basically people think about the nominal function. So they try that something is working really well. Whereas aerospace people always think about what can go wrong and what will I do if something goes wrong. And so in my private life, I see that that if I go on holiday or fly somewhere, I put uh, the printout of the tickets in one bag <laughs> and in another bag and then again in the backpack. And so other people look at me like... Uh, are you crazy? But this is really, the way of thinking is different because we are really driven by thinking not how can I make it good, but uh, how do I make sure that nothing goes wrong and how can I handle if something goes wrong? And this is a very different mindset. 
Does that also happen to you when you fly with the technical aspects of the plane? Do you think, oh, this could go wrong with with how it's flying right now? This could when I'm flying as a passenger, no. Basically, <laughs> then I'm um, then I'm really relaxed. But it's very funny because you start to see some things differently uh, if you know the people personally who did it. <laughs> It, it really makes a difference. And that was also very different. When I was a student, I had very big respect and I was always thinking, oh, that's sophisticated and complicated and you have uh, experts working on it and they exactly know what to do. And then you get to know the people and then you say, oh, maybe I'll take the train. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, in, in everything that could go wrong, we a topic that you address a lot in your lectures as well is safety and certification and all of that. I think this is a huge topic that you are also very engaged in. And what is the primary aspects that people overlook in safety and certification? Is it that it like is bad for progress? Is it, you know, like there's too many things we need to do and that's why we can't optimize their aircraft correctly or so the first important thing is the focus on these aspects in safety and certification. I would say this is a speciality of fear at, at TU Munich. So there is one or two other universities that are also doing that. But in the classical university lectures, you learn a lot of theoretical things and you can see it like horsepower of an engine to have the theory, but somehow you need to get the horsepower on the road. And this is basically what we try to do with the safety and certification lectures to tell you what you really have to do to put something into reality. And basically, when people don't have that, they do not appreciate the procedures and the processes on how you have to develop something. And now this answers your question specifically. What is then going wrong very often is that people say, oh, I want to build an aircraft, I want to do something. And they start to develop and build something and then they're already too late. Because if you really want to do a product, you have to go to the authority before you start the development and you have to clarify the development process before you start. Everything you did before you talk to the authority in the end is in vain. It helps you for your learning curve, but uh, it is not uh, really useful basically for developing uh, the product. And if you never hear about what you really need to do as an institution, what you need to have as qualifications and what you need to follow, then basically it will be a very painful in terms of very expensive and very long development process. And I think there is no business like aerospace where predictions on schedules and cost are so unrealistic <laughs> than this area. And so what you really have to do is you have to take the announcements of companies and basically then you have to look at reality. And people very quickly forget what they promised last week and what they announced Because in the end, many aircraft that were announced in 2014 were supposed to fly in 2017, and they're still not flying. And so when we talk about certification, you know, there is a lot of companies which are very close to certification, but uh, very few companies which are just after certification. And especially in these new areas which are coming up now, I think a lot of yeah. companies will die because they underestimate this effort. As a good example, if you build a small sports airplane, then the cost you need for a prototype, which you can fly manned, is about 10% of the money you have to spend to get 
to the final certified airplane. And this is something which is really funny because in these new types of aviation, you find a lot of investors which are coming from other domains, like for example, from the IT domain, right? Where basically production means you place your software on the internet, which yeah. is not deep tech where you have to qualify materials and production processes and so on. And they think, ah, I see the aircraft already flying and somebody sitting inside. Now I only have to certify and manufacture it. And they don't know that the 90% of the money is in between. And so they keep on spending and then they spend twice as much and 10 times as much as what they already planned. And then in the end, basically, still a lot of these companies are going bankrupt. So since everything is certified so, what's the word? So thoroughly, um, and there's regulations for everything, you would assume that it's very clear in case of fatalities and accidents that you know you know exactly where to point the finger you know exactly what went wrong what like who do you think is responsible in such cases you know um, the interesting thing is all these processes that force things to be documented and so on so well really led to the fact that civil aviation for a long time has been the safest mode of transportation and uh, if you think for us human beings uh, It's not the usual thing to fly, right? We can walk, <laughs> we can swim, but if we try to fly, it's normally not working if we jump out of the window. And so, um, therefore, I, I would say um, you can appreciate um, this. And I think one of the big factors was uh, to send quantitative uh, to set quantitative safety targets. That in the end, basically, um, you're not escaping from the point which is hard to uh, to discuss in society at which probability is it allowed that all people in your aircraft die? But by having this number, you have something against uh, you really can against which you can really calculate. But now we are running more and more in a problem because in the end, certification means that you get something that testifies that what you built is basically complying to certain rules and regulations, which is your certification basis. And the very original intent was that you have competent people at the certifying agencies that are checking that. Now, of course, what is happening more and more is that the amount of projects and the complexity of the projects is getting so high that the regulators have less and less the chance to really look at your product and what you're doing. So what happens uh, It always happened, but it's happening more and more that basically they are certifying the institution and they're certifying your process and the way you work. And then basically the authority to sign something as safe for flight is handed over to people which are working in the company. And this is now, of course a situation that has a certain criticality because the people are liable to the regulator, but on the other side, they're paid by the company, right? So it's like, okay, I have to give the signature that the aircraft is safe for flight. It's not done by the authority. It's done by somebody working in the company who is paid by the company, but represents the authority. And you already feel Yeah. that this can lead to a light conflict of interest. And if you look at uh, many discussions which you've seen over the last five, six years, basically this point surfaced very often. How detailed does the oversight of the authority have to be in this process? 
But if you would say, ah, oh, the authority has to overlook everything, then we would need much more people there because with the complexity and the multitude of the projects, that is really hard and that would be driving up cost. And so basically, I would also not have a good solution for that. But in the end, what we end up with is a situation that you have this conflict of interest, that you have people in the company which in the end represent the authority but are paid by the company. And so that's a challenge. Would you say, for example, if we look at the accidents uh, from the Boeing 737 MAX that we would have, they would not really care for 100% like safety or certification if they would make more profit out of it. Like as an okay, we 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 say we we upgrade the efficiency of the aircraft by mounting the engines, but then there's things going wrong. And if we would account for that, we had to redo the entire aircraft, like redo the frames and everything. But let's just do it this way, like just put in a, an MRAC in there and then just like say it will fly perfectly and then just hope for the best. Is that like also thing that you think it comes from like money? Like, oh yeah, we'll save money and then we'll hope everything goes right. And then how far does that like come back to haunt you? In some sense, you, you know, I would now not uh, comment with respect to a certain company, but of course, yeah, in general, is, rather, yeah, this sorry. is the really general problem you have, and you don't only have it in in companies manufacturing airplanes. You have exactly the same in uh, airlines, for example. So it's really interesting to see how different the fuel policies of the different airlines are in terms of uh, taking extra or contingency fuel. If you take more fuel. Then, because you're heavier, you're also burning more fuel, but it gives you safety, right? Yeah. And so now you see that you have some of the classical airlines. And as a positive example, I can still state Lufthansa because mm -hmm. it's a positive statement where they're still taking more fuel. So they can make it to the alternate airport and they, they can uh, hold if there is bad weather. And then we have other airlines in Europe which are making use of that because they declare emergency yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, when Lufthansa and uh, KLM and British Airways are circling. Um, they get priority to land because otherwise they run out of fuel. And I have a former student from Asia who was for some time uh, working for a software company in Singapore and Indonesia, and they served an airline um, which was automatically checking how much remaining fuel the aircraft had on board after landing, not to see if it was safe, but if it was too much fuel for the same pilot uh, for a certain point, uh, for a certain number of times, they were quoting in the pilot and say, hey, you're uh, having too much fuel on board. And there's even monetary punishment if they don't do that. So basically, you inspire people to be less safe. And so if we now close the arc, you have this on the manufacturing side, on the operation side, that you have the pressure between the people who try to be economic and then the safety people who by definition are supposed to be independent, both in an airline and both basically in an aircraft company. And to make sure that uh, they live up to the safety in both cases, these people are personally liable. So you cannot push away the responsibility to the institution or you cannot do it with the insurance, but you're personally liable, but still you're in this conflict of interest. And there is also examples here in Europe where these so-called CVEs, compliance verification engineers in the US, they're called the R designated engineering representative had to go to jail 
personally because it could be proven that they did not uh, basically satisfy the duties. But on the other side, they are under constant uh, pressure. And so this is not too healthy. And the only thing how you can, in the end, uh, influence it is if you make sure that the regulation is good. For example, with the fuel, if there would be stricter regulations for the remaining fuel on board, this, of course, would be helpful. So getting back a bit to the aspect of control, since we were talking about accidents, of course, the control systems of planes are some of the safest systems there are. Um, but are there things that can specifically go wrong a lot? Because a lot of people trust pilots more than they do the systems, even though it's considered very safe. Is there like anything behind that where we say, okay, fair enough, you know? It's a funny thing. When I was a kid, three people were sitting in the cockpit and basically you had this mechanical connection between the yoke in the cockpit yeah. and the control surfaces. Yeah. And the first fate of the modern civilization and basically the end of aviation was when they removed the third people, a third person <laughs> from the cockpit. So when you uh, read interviews uh, from that time, basically, oh, this is impossible and blah, blah, blah. And in the end, uh, they removed the third person and still flying was uh, becoming safer. And then something happened that was unimaginable in 1986 uh, with the Airbus 320 where in the end, basically, the pilot is no longer talking to the control surfaces, but the pilot talks to a computer, and not the pilot, but the computer decides what to do. <laughs> This, oh, that again was uh, the world going down. But in the end, if you look, flying still became safer. And I think, to the best of my knowledge, not a single civil passenger airplane crashed so far, because of a total failure of the fly-by-wire system. That is something that has to be acknowledged. So there were a lot of uh, crashes where basically the fly-by-wire system was also involved. But the expected thing that you have a total loss of control, meaning that if you move the stick, the surfaces are no longer moving, to the best of my knowledge, that has never happened so far in civil aviation. So you see inherently the systems are really very safe, but the devil is in the detail. And also for us as engineers, it's very easy to blame the pilots, but there is a lot of accidents where you see the aircraft crashed, people were dying or people were injured, where basically the finger is pointed very quickly towards the pilot, but where if you're honest, uh, we got victims of the complexity of the system. There is a nice TV documentary which you can freely download from 1993. It's called Fatal Logics. And it shows basically how the complexity in the system and undocumented functions basically make life hard for the pilots, which has led to fatal crashes where you say, ah, this is the pilot's fault. But in the end, if you're really honest, Functions were not documented, functions were wrong documented, or the system did things which the pilots were not aware of. And I think this is the problem. It's not about that you have certain components which are unreliable, but it is that the system is only safe if you keep the human perfectly in the loop. And if there is the awareness of the human operator, 
and the full transparency of what the system is doing. And this is a big challenge, especially when everything is going fine. The pilots, which is of course normal, you cannot pay 12 hours full attention to the system. So if the aircraft is flying straight and level, everything is fine. And then once in a sudden, something happens and you do not know where it is, what it is. And then it's about how you get the pilot in the loop, how the situational awareness of the pilot really matches what is going on. And this is, in my opinion, for most of the accidents in civil aviation, one of the critical points. The human interaction with the control system yeah. itself. For example, again, it would be not, uh, it would be not uh, fair to be mean about uh, the pilots who were flying the 737 MAX aircraft mm -hmm. that crashed. And I would not blame it to the pilot because there is a serious flaw in the design that was now yeah. removed. But uh, also to be clear about that, the same thing happened several times on the same aircraft type in the US, right? Where it was pilots flying who were very experienced, very well trained and very analytic. And so they didn't think much about it. They just cut the trim mechanism and then the system could not do anything wrong anymore, right? But but you see that this difference in training and this difference in awareness and this difference in understanding the system, of course, still has a large impact. And therefore, if the aircraft crashes where the flight control system is working, it does not mean that you can blame it to the pilot because very often it's a problem of the situational awareness, but on the other side, it also shows how important still the pilot and the training of the pilot is. And in the end, safety is neither produced by the aircraft nor by the aircraft, uh, nor by the pilot, but by the complete system of both acting together very well. And so to make the flight control system safe is not only looking at its components, but also making sure that it serves the pilot and it's not doing what it wants. As you were saying, one of the critical aspects is the interaction between the pilot and the control system itself and not necessarily just the control system. So what I was thinking is that with the development of autopilots, which can basically do almost everything a pilot can do as well, and even now we can also have automatic landing and takeoff, do you think there is a future where we'll just throw out the pilot and be like, oh yeah, well, that's just the flame flight itself? I think it might happen one day, but uh, this day is still, in my opinion, a distance. So I don't okay. say, um, like others are um, promising it, that we can fly completely autonomously with humans on board tomorrow in, in routine transportation cases, um, because there is a lot of things which are so easy for us as humans to do which are quite hard to automate in a way that you can prove that the automation always works. Imagine you're flying towards a runway and you want to make sure that there is nothing on the runway. If you do this with cameras and image processing and so on, it can be done. But to guarantee basically that this is working very well is quite expensive and hard. And you can use any monkey to say, look, is there somebody <laughs> um, or not? And so there is complementary strengths between uh, humans and uh, automation. And of course, what we should try to do, because it would make flying accessible to more people, that we are pushing more and more the limit that basically what you have to learn by yourself becomes less and less. 
But of course, if you look at today's aircraft, when everything is fine, then the aircraft are really simple to fly. But the qualifications of professional pilots are needed when things go wrong. And if you now think that you want to do what we call simplified vehicle operations, that you no longer need this pilot training, but that more people can fly an aircraft, then it doesn't help if the aircraft says, oh, the system is fading now, you're back to direct law. <laughs> now you have to do everything by yourself. And this means that for these higher levels of automation, which we currently allow to fail because we know that the pilot is taking over, for these higher levels, we have to increase the availability and uh, the safety because only then, basically, we could allow people to fly with less training. But in this direction, it's currently moving rapidly. And I would dare to say that in five years of now, um, you could have low-cost, smaller airplanes and evitols, which people can fly without classical professional pilot training. And I also say that even today, there is a lot of applications where I would say it's perfectly fine to put a human in a vehicle that is flying autonomously. For example, as you know, um, from our institute, we are closely collaborating with a startup which we founded together, Avilus, where it's about transporting severely injured people, where you say, okay, if you don't transport the person now, um, he, she will die within uh, a short time. And then, of course, it's justified. But basically, this vision over the inner city of a large city to have thousands of vehicles flying around uh, without pilot, uh, this is something where I think it will take some more years. And even if the controls all work, the the plane can, the vehicle can fly completely by itself, how important do you think the human aspect of it is? Because I mean, I know a lot of people who are afraid of planes, even though they are really safe. Um, and just knowing there's a human there, you know, helps calm their mind a bit, even if it's not necessarily, <laughs> you know, very helpful. Do you think that will set us back a bit? That um, we will have a pilot even when it's not necessary? Um, honestly speaking, I think it will not be the psychological aspect. But um, some years ago, we had a, a very interesting call with uh, EASA uh, for discussing long-range drone operation. And as stupid as it may sound, it's very important to have a human being who is liable, basically, where you say, it was his fault, it was her fault. And uh, in the end, basically, even if uh, the aircraft is flying in an automatic manner by itself, I realized, and I never thought about this as an engineer, that there is still the necessity or the mindset that you want to have a clear person that is liable if something goes wrong. And in the call back then, the discussion was, imagine you have a cargo drone flying from Munich to let's say Shanghai, right? And so when it takes off in Munich, you have a local operator that takes a care about the takeoff procedure and this local operator uh, has the engine running for a long time. The takeoff is delayed and so on and the aircraft consumes way more fuel than originally planned when it's taking off in Munich. 
And then when it arrives in Shanghai, it is short of fuel and it crashes because it has fuel starvation. Now, of course, you have the person who is uh, in charge of the lending procedure in Shanghai. But can you blame this guy or can you blame uh, whoever was in charge of the flight in between, even if it's flying automatically? And so basically, I never thought about it. But in this call, there was really the discussion for every flight. Should there be something like a accountable person who has to take care that everything is fine? And my feeling is that this accountability thing is much stronger than the people being I'm scared because in the end it's your choice if you want to enter these autonomous planes or not. And there is enough people um, who would sit in the airplane right now, even if there's no pilot. Fair point. Fair point. Um, I think that's something I, I was very curious about when you were already, already mentioning Shanghai. You are chief director for the National Laboratory of Astronautics and Aeronautics in Beijing, or you were? No? Is that something? that I've read about? Is that something that you collaborate with, that you work with, or...? So at Beihang University, they, uh, they uh, introduced such a collaborative research center. And uh, basically for that, they created roles as chief chair professor okay. for international people. And I was very happy to hold one of these positions from 2017 to 2019, Then the Corona shit uh, came, yeah. and so it was a pity. But to be really honest, I enjoyed it a lot, and I appreciated the people with whom I could work there, and also the students I got to know, and so on a lot. And therefore, for me, it's a bit sad that the current political situation is really making this collaboration harder and yeah. harder. But basically, you know, There is always the systems and the politics. And on the other side, you always have the relationship between individual humans, the trust, the appreciation, and so on. And what I can only say is the people I got to know were, in my opinion, very nice humans. They had nice personality. And of course, I think, especially when on the highest level there are tensions, I think there is a certain importance to keep up and continue personal relationships because there need to be times when things get better again. And I think what holds things together are always personal relationships. I actually have something overarching to that. People would always happen in the past, for example, let's, let's look at the, at the supersonic aircrafts, right? You would have you know, the, the Russians saying like, oh, we want to have the first supersonic aircraft. So you have a bunch of engineers working there. You get the Tupolev out as fast as possible. So people say, okay, competition is good for progress, right? Like we need, you know, as long as someone is faster as us, we'll make a better, faster, cooler plane, whatever, right? But what would you think about the other part? Like, what if there was more collaboration between people? Let's say we have genius Rus Russian engineers, we have genius Chinese engineers, first genius German engineers, and genius American engineers working <laughs> together. And they create like the next supersonic aircraft that will be absolutely perfect because we have all the genius in the world combined. Like, is that something that just seems a bit like utopian or does it seem like collaboration has proven you be better effective than competition? Or what would is your take on that? So first, I would definitely agree that competition is something that is extremely important. And uh, competition is something which is really uh, driving progress. And so, therefore, I would say competition is extremely important. But you don't have to see it between uh, countries. You can also see it between institutions yeah. and between uh, companies. 
One very interesting thing is, again, independent of politics and independent of governments and so on, um, what I learned is the technical people from the companies who are very competent know each other and they very much appreciate each other. Please see what I say now, completely independent from the uh, from the current political situation. On the internet, you can download a lot of uh, reports from the United States Air Force Research Lab. And so if you take reports from the 90s after the East Block was falling, you will find reports about high-speed flight, United States Air Force reports prepared by Professor Alexander Efromov, Moscow Aviation Institute. And you know, it's not that the people would have only got to know each other after the Cold War. Yeah. You can be really sure that the good people at all time know each other and there is a lot of appreciation. And, uh, you know, it's always a complicated question if you say that if somebody is, I put it like this, living uh, in a country where we do not agree with the political system or the content, can you then blame the people for building airplanes or something like that? And, you know, I know aerospace engineers from almost all countries, and uh, some of them are indeed political. Some of them have a political opinion, which is very different from what you expect and which they cannot say in the country where they're living. Um, but basically, it doesn't change the fact that they're brilliant engineers and that they appreciate each other. It's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. Um, so coming back to Tom, um, you're also leading the Institute of Fly Flight System Dynamics. Um, and you already said that you really enjoyed your position um, at the university in China. But um, what are things that you love about like leading an institute here, like actually being here, working on it and everything? So basically, you know, I think we are not the classical research institute where it's about, oh, we prove a theorem and then we write a paper. For me, the motivation to become an engineer is always that I wanted to do something. And um, what I think is the greatest thing at a university is to work with students and to work with young people. And and I, this I don't say because it's a student podcast. No, no, <laughs> this is this is this is something this is something I really mean because you get in touch with people who are in the face of their life where they really want to show something, right? Where there is really the enthusiasm to move something. And basically my hope for the future is that for as long as possible I can continue to be part of new activities that are leading to companies and that are leading to really building things. Because for me, if I can help people to found companies and pursue a self-controlled career future, right? Where you are not in the big department with an idiot in front of your um, or your head who tells you what to do and uh, who's not appreciating what you can. But if there's companies basically where the people are in control by themselves and if we can keep up good contact, then this is giving me a nice return because then I'm allowed to do interesting things. You know, 
I don't feel that I want to be at the institute for sitting there and appreciating big companies and say, oh, I admire what they're doing. I want to do things by myself. And therefore, I need buddies who want to do things with me. And this works much better with companies uh, which just started and with small companies. And so this is why I like leading the institute. And of course, because especially in Germany, there is more and more limitations and restrictions and bureaucracy. The biggest challenge for me is to be very creative in staying in a gray area so I still <laughs> can do what I want to do. But this is really what keeps me going. The students and the startups and finding people who share their own passion and who really want to do something. Is there any ongoing research projects that you can and like to share? Um, of course. So most of our research projects are, are known. And so currently um, there is one company in Ottobrunn. Um, the company is public, so we can state the name. It's called ERC Systems. This is a very cool company. They do not say yet what they're building, but uh, what they're building is really cool. And so we are very proud to be a part of this. I hope that this will be one of the very visible things in 2024. Then last year, of course, the very big thing was the Grille. Because again, we stayed a secret for a long time and we only showed it when it was flying. And so uh, it helped us, for example, now to win a European grant for 25 million euros, where we now can uh, advance and build a bigger and more modern version. Another thing I like very much is the eMagic One. So during Corona, um, an entrepreneur, not for commercializing, but for himself, because he thought he wants to have an eVTOL, and not because he was throwing at it with money, but because he's very competent, He just built himself an eVTOL, right? And so you have others announcing, we will blah, blah. And then 10 years after it, nothing is happening. He built it. And after a year, he was flying manned. Uh, only fixed wing now. But basically, uh, with him, we're doing cool things. I look forward to that. Then there is nice startups here at TUM, basically, which are done by former Horizon students. And uh, so it's their performance. I have no credit in this. I really appreciate them, but they're doing so cool stuff. And so I'm really hoping that I can work something with them because I think they are really doing inspiring stuff. That's another great project. Then the next thing I'm really happy is last year, together with the Helicopter Institute, we were flying a 600-kilogram helicopter unmanned. Now we have a project to turn that into an unmanned a firefighting helicopter. And we hope to get a project to get this into an unmanned cargo helicopter. And so this is another great perspective. But what you see in all of these projects, it's not where we derive an equation. We still have to do a lot of mathematical stuff. But in the end, I want to see it flying. And there is also projects in the defense domain, which I was doing all the time. So since I was here, uh, basically, this was an area that is also important for me. And for a long time, basically, there was a certain push also by the university to not talk public about this. But in the end, I think it's very important to see that this is also good research. And for example, now for many years, we have a very cool project with Israel in building uh, low-cost surface-to-air missiles 
to defend against uh, incoming threats. And so this is also something which is ongoing and where we made a lot of friends and established good contacts and where we hope that we can also continue those efforts in the future. Is there any other chairs? I mean, you mentioned you work with the um, helicopter chair. Any other chairs at the university you really want to work with or any dream projects, I guess, you have in mind? So... Um, Number one, we are working a lot of with chairs at other universities in Germany and uh, also uh, globally. And um, I really love this global exchange because I would feel locked up if I couldn't fly around. <laughs> <laughs> and after a certain distance, nobody can be angry if I don't take the train, especially if there's a lot of water <laughs> in between. Um And when it comes about collaboration here inside the university, it always depends on the topic. So we had a nice project with Alois Knoll from Informatics. Um, we have uh, in the augmented area reality, uh, augmented reality area, a topic with Professor Klinker at uh, the IT department. We have projects with uh, Claudia Chado at the math department. So you see, it's a lot of constellations which you wouldn't see at first place. But whenever you find somebody where the people are appreciating what each other is doing and that you see that together you're stronger than alone and that you complement each other, then there's always interesting things. And what I learned is the most exciting things always happens when you work with people who are in a discipline where in the beginning you wouldn't think uh, that it's too close together. So the current coolest projects like ERC or basically um, Avilos are together with the chief surgeon of the uh, surgery clinics at the Klinikum Rechts der ISA. And so this is really interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. I actually also wanted to ask, what is your involvement in our study program? I think that's something that we'd also be very interested in, like, because you're obviously very involved in the start of this. Like when, when all of this began, you were pushing a lot of things that have to be implemented into the courses, into the things that have to be done. You're part of multiple boards and everything. And we'd be interested, like, where do you see this going? Where, what is your aspirations with this study program? And what do you think uh, we as a whole now have created? And if you're proud of what has happened here or not? So officially, I'm in charge of the master program, mm -hmm. both here in Munich and in Singapore. But when uh, we got the task to do a new bachelor program, I was really excited about that because I had my clear idea what I would think the world's best aerospace bachelor <laughs> program uh, would be like. And, you know, the interesting thing is I'm not interested in roles where I'm formally in charge mm -hmm. and so on. But, you know, if you have the feeling, oh, I would like it to be like this and that, then, of course, um, you win a lot if you fast. And so basically, if you throw things on the table, um, then the prob uh, probability that they remain is is very high. And when uh, we were still part of mechanical engineering, I was very frustrated because I had the feeling that we had a, a big moment of inertia and that we had a very heavy backpack of about what an engineer needs to know and how it always was, right? And as aerospace, we suddenly were by ourselves. We were small and we were agile. And so I would say, if I would take credit for something in the bachelor program, number one, that you have an aerospace lecture already in the first semester. Because when I was a student, 
uh, I had to buy lecture notes from the fifth semester to show to myself that it's really worth doing all the bullshit <laughs> because I wanted to see aeroplanes and I didn't see any aeroplanes in the first four semester. I was very much pushing to cancel chemistry and physics because in both of the subjects, when I was a student, we learned things that were mainly, again, covered in other subjects. And I think you lose a lot of time by that. And then one of the things I think we can be very proud of is that we now have a lot of more project work and so on, where basically you get the horsepower, but as early as possible, you need to learn on how to get the horsepower uh, on the road. And I think it's very good that uh, the degree program is in English. There is so many things in aerospace where if you ask me what's the German word, I wouldn't know. And where even in the German lecture, basically you had English words. And to make it a more critical and now that we can start to argue with each other, I'm also very much in favor that for the bachelor program, there will be student fees for the international students. I think this is... This is a very important thing because otherwise we would run into problems. And so I think with this combination, we have a good chance uh, that this Munich Aerospace Bachelor internationally becomes a very good and very strong program. Okay. What would be the problems you'd think you would run into if it wasn't feed? So um, I would hope that from the fees we get, we could hire some people who, in a dedicated manner, can take care basically about the needs of some of the international students because we already had it on the table when we talked about doing the degree program because there was the fear that the amount of effort is exploding when you get a lot of international students in the undergraduate level. And this is basically what to a certain extent is really happening. And I think both for the students who are affected and for the administration at the university, it would be really good to have some dedicated people. Because I put it like this, um, you, are, you have to put 95% of the effort on a rather small amount of students and they deserve to study. They should be here, right? But basically, if you say to the people um, who didn't have to take care before, ah, you do this now in addition, it it just doesn't it just doesn't work it's really it's really saturating the resources and currently there would be no way to set up these dedicated resources and um if you say that we want to use the money in a fair way and don't abuse it for something else then this would be a fair return and it would provide also those students who need this support um a much more worthy environment And the other thing is also um, that also in the international competition, we also to a certain extent have to protect our program because we want to offer the people here a really high-class program, right? And so it does not make sense if you're just the ones where it's for free, where the people apply basically um, because they have to pay somewhere else. We have to make sure also to protect the local students and the European students, that basically we attract the people because we offer a very good degree program. We want to be competitive. And so if we benchmark ourselves on the European scale, I would say currently, and so this is my personal ambition, that we need to get at least close. Um, the very good university in Europe uh, in the aerospace bachelor, for example, TU Delft, 
And of course, um, basically like everyone else, um, they are charging. Not because we go on to get rich, but basically if you just reinvest the money, then you can you can improve and everybody benefits. You said you mostly teach especially master courses, but is there generally just bachelor or master one course that's like your favorite that you would want everyone to take? So my own favorite course is the Advanced Flight Controls course because there I can play a lot with Simulink, which I love to do. <laughs> so when I look at my day job, it's a lot of administration and I always say I'm doing housekeeping. So basically the PhD students can do the cool stuff. And in Advanced Flight Controls, I can play around by myself, which I really enjoy. And with teaching with the master courses now, thanks to the bachelor, basically I can have more teaching in the bachelor and there the benchmark is really high because the automatic controls in mechanical engineering is given by Professor Lohmann whom I really really appreciate and where I have a big respect and last year I had to give this lecture for the first time by myself and to be really honest I was not happy at all with my own performance so I see that there is big room for improvement and so over the year now we did a lot of things so that the second run gets better And so I hope that one day I will get close, but it's a challenge for me. <laughs> but I'm still too young to run away from challenges. So you were saying that teaching the automatic control engineer was a challenge for you. I was actually curious if there was anywhere in your life a challenge or a problem that seemed completely unsolvable or something that you think, oh, I have no idea how to do this. And I'd be curious, how did you manage to overcome it? And how would you recommend other people to overcome these type of things when they're faced with something that might seem impossible or maybe an exam that seems unsolvable, undoable, whatever, or just anything in engineering that cannot be solved, but then you manage to solve. Is there any strategy you're taking? I think the most important thing is that you're enthusiastic and that you really want something. And there is a big difference between want something and really want something. And uh, that basically you never give up. I think it's not, uh, the, the real things are not an engineering strategy or a technical strategy. I think the most important thing is that you're really committed to something. And uh, it's important when you fall down, you have to stand up. And if it doesn't work on the first time, you try a second time, you try a third time, you try a fourth time. I think that's really by far the most important thing. For example, If I take, yeah, let, let me put it like this. Most of the things that meant a lot to me, I achieved after others were saying, basically, you will never do this and it's ridiculous and you shouldn't even try. And honestly speaking, when people tell me you will not do this or when people tell me this cannot be done, This is particularly inspiring for me. <laughs> so this is really one big point uh, of motivation, which then actively pushes me to do something. So I think you would have expected something else, like an engineering tip or oh, a not necessarily. This is, this is the most important thing is never give up. And in the end, you have to look in the mirror and you have to tell yourself, I can really do this and never be discouraged by people telling you, you cannot do this. And especially now a tip for Germany, don't trust in the naysayers. You know, 
you're always sitting in the middle and you have a lot of people around you who tell you why this is not working, why you're not the right one and who know everything better. In the end, if you try hard, if you fight for something, then you can do it. There is unfortunately things in life where you always have to stay humble bitch because you don't have them under your control and um, you have to appreciate those most. This is like being healthy, right? Yeah. And so living in this country, living in this environment is something where you always have to know that this already is a really big privilege and you don't have to take it for granted. But what currently happens is that people deny the close relationship between what you do and what you can achieve. If you try, you can lose. If you don't try, you have already lost, right? And uh, today, it's like a lot of people uh, always say everything that other people are getting is just by luck. And I would say in many positions and in many situations, there is a lot of luck. But with luck alone, it wouldn't work either. And so the best recommendation that I can give is if you believe in something, then it, that it let nobody else tell that this is not going to work. Then you just do it. And if it doesn't work, you try again. And at some place, it will work. That's very beautiful. That's exactly yeah. what <laughs> I think that's better than an engineering trick at this point, honestly. Yeah, I agree. When I, when I applied for this position, yeah. for the professorship, I was quite young and I got calls from renowned German classical aerospace people <laughs> that I should not do this. I would burn my personality and I would make myself ridiculous if I do this. And basically after I submitted my application, you hear in the community, the discussion, who will be the professor and so on. And I always heard other names, right? It was this guy and this guy and this guy. And uh, back in that time, uh, you still got the letter from the ministry, Or from the science ministry. And the interesting thing, when I already had the letter and I knew it's me, I still heard, <laughs> oh, it will be this guy, it will be that guy. And from that day on, I was very relaxed and said, okay, <laughs> keep on discussing. I don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> and it was the same thing with this 25 million project. I, I just said, you know, um, it's a lot of it's a lot of work. And again, that was last year. People told me, um, Don't try. You're wasting your energy. And they told me which two companies are um, basically applying as a consortium. And when I heard the name of these two companies, I said, now I will really do it. <laughs> <laughs> and we won. But this is always starting from the desperate situation. And then basically you don't give up. I think a lot of people can take that to heart and... I think that's really good advice. Um, okay, so is because you put more of an emphasis on non-engineering aspects that you should have, things you should have. Is there any like non-academic, non-engineering um, skill that you recommend everyone learn? A non-engineering yeah, skill yes. that every yeah. So um, you would call it classical virtues. So you have to be persistent, you have to be precise, you have to be dedicated and you don't give up. But but no, not to get it wrong, 
um, because I'm a very big fan of also the classical engineering skills more than others because today people always say, ah, you need to have soft skills and all the other things don't count. No, that's not true. All the other things won't help you if you don't try to be excellent in the classical things. And, and one thing I try to always tell the students in the lecture is that basically you have to be strong on the fundamental side in terms of math, mechanics, and so on. But the privilege we have as engineers compared to other disciplines is that what we're doing has an intuitive interpretation. You know, we are not having atoms in a 50-dimensional curved space, but we're building an airplane. And I think as an engineer, you can always, or you can be most successful if you have a match between your mathematical and the intuitive understanding. And this is so important because I would say 90% of the engineers can reproduce things. So there is a recipe and following the recipe, they can do something. But what I hope is that we produce at TU Munich are the engineers who can lead something in terms of that they come up with new solutions. And new solutions are things which you don't find in a book. New solutions are things basically which have not done before. And you can, in my opinion, only create new solutions if you know the fundamentals and the theory, but if you also understand what you're doing. And you know, in our school life and also when you practice for exams, you are trained in a way that you say, okay, there is a Musterlösung, a, a, a pattern solution, an official solution, and I have to find out that solution. If you build something new, the solution is not there. So you have to develop your own strategy. How can I by myself verify if what I'm doing is correct? How can I get confidence? And, and you know, these are skills you have to learn that you mathematically understand and that you have the intuitive understanding and that you develop mechanisms where if you produce a solution by yourself, how can I verify for myself because there is no book to look it up if what I created is correct. And I think these are things which are very important for engineers who want to be able to deliver original solutions rather than doing routine tasks. And this is so important because there is always places where, where you have people who can do routine tasks for a lower price. So this will not justify a good payment. And the other thing is these non-routine tasks or these routine tasks, you can automate very well. So if you want to have a strong position in the future, in my opinion, you need to be able to develop own solutions and you always need to keep the flexibility to do something different and do something new. And you always have to force yourself to challenge, to get out your of your comfort level, right? So many of the things which we are now doing at the Institute, I did not do when I was working in the industry. And honestly speaking, I'm really always scared when we are doing something new where I'm teaching stuff in a domain where I'm not coming from, because then basically I'm one lesson ahead from the students. <laughs> <laughs> but, but for me, this is an opportunity and I try to learn. And after three and four and five years, basically, I can say now I know something about this area. It's true. You have to learn the rules before you break them. That's also yeah. beautiful. Something that I was actually very interested in. I always believe that 
probably science and engineering is one of the most altruistic professions that there is out there. Like everything we do generally, not every domain, but contributes to the development of society. Every inquiry basically brings us as humans forward. How do you see yourself in that role? Do you believe you also come from an altruistic spirit where you think, thing as I do are not just for the sake of, oh, this is really cool, because obviously that's also one good thing. Like, oh, building this would be cool. Building this is interesting. But do you also have some altruistic spirit in you which thinks, okay, I am actually contributing to society. I'm actually contributing to safety of people. I'm doing all these things in some sense also for, I would say, a, a bigger reason than just, oh, I really like this. But it, and both are justified, I would say. But is there anything that you would have in that regard. I, I said before, it's always important also to be humble and therefore also to be realistic. Mm -hmm. And you know, the one error you shouldn't do is to take yourself as too important. You know, by nature, you become an engineer because you want to do something which in the end is really working, right? So in the end, you want to provide something where others are saying, hey, the world is better having this than by not having this, right? But now, of course, we have to question, and this is something where we have to be really honest, is the most, so for me, aerospace is the thing that throughout my life has fascinated me most. And you would find a lot of people who would very strongly stress basically how important aerospace is and how uh, central this is to society. But I wouldn't consider that honest. So I think uh, basically I do want to do things which are helping others. But if I now would look in the mirror and say what I'm doing, this is given the current problems of the world, the most important aspect wouldn't be honest either, right? So I think the perceived importance of what I am doing and what we are doing in aerospace for me over my life was continuously going down because you realize there is other problems that might be more striking, which need to be solved first. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. But would you, let's, let's come from a point where, okay, we, we come from the point that you do aerospace because you like it, you're fascinated by it. I'm, I'm thinking, is there a point in your life where you thought, okay, this is a very interesting question. If you have chosen this career path because you genuinely wholeheartedly have committed for this. Was there any moment in your life where you sat back and kind of thought, okay, is this really what I loved? Or if I have I taken away some sort of opportunity for me to maybe tap into something which I would have fell in love equally? Or do you really know wholeheartedly this is every cell of my body is committed to this field? I think this is one of the privileges I have for myself since I was a little kid. I was the biggest aircraft idiot, which you can ever imagine. So when I was a kid, every day there was a lot of supersonic flights. And so in English, you call it a sound barrier. In German, it's Schallmauer, Mauer, which is wall. So when I was three years, I was running around. I was looking for the bricks because <laughs> my dad told me that somebody broke the Schallmauer, the sound barrier, right? And for me, that was always so clear. And of course, I wanted to become a pilot, right? And so for me, it was so clear that one day I will be a fighter pilot in the United States Air Force, right? <laughs> um, 
and I wrote a letter. And the interesting thing, which I still, which I still really appreciate, because you don't have to take it for granted, I got a letter back, and they told me that I first would have to become American. <laughs> But it's nice, you know, you have to see that somebody sits down and, and writes you the letter. And by the way, later when I was a student, I made an internship as a student uh, in the United States yeah. Air Force, at the Air Force Research Lab, which was really cool for me. And then it was clear, okay, then basically I want to build those aircraft. And I uh, then... Of course, at certain points in time also was disillusioned because after studying, I started in a large company and my feeling is, you know, you sit there and you don't have an impact and so on. And then I went back for doing my PhD because I felt I have more freedom, I can do something. And that what I learned already from that point in time, it doesn't matter so much for me, basically what the company is doing as a whole, as a whole but what is the impact that I can have what is uh, what I'm doing. And that from that point in time, it was already clear um, that I do not want to work in a very big company again. And I always want to work in positions where I have the freedom to influence what I'm doing. And then in my second industry time after uh, the PhD, I found a job where I was quite happy and where I could do all of this. But in the end, The good thing is that the university, together with the students, you can do what you want, right? And that's, of course, the best thing you can do. Perfect. I, I still wouldn't trade my job for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good to hear. Um, so you said you you've always loved flying. Is there any like flight where you like that you that was like especially memorable? So in the meantime, I don't fly uh, anymore by myself. But of course, what is a very special moment is the first solo flight when you're sitting in the airplane for the first time alone without uh, without a flight instructor. And I have to be honest, I love flying above all, but I was never a good pilot. So maybe <laughs> this is the reason why I want to do flight control, because if I'm stu too stupid to do it by myself, I need the some assistance. And, you know, there is a lot of uh, flights which I remember exactly because I started to fly when I was a kid. And now, you know, this is many years back, so you can talk about it. I did a lot of things where then being an aerospace engineer, you know that it was really stupid what we did because with gliders, we watched Top Gun and then on the next day we were <laughs> flying away. So now if the grown up people could see us and doing dogfights and so on. Fly by the tower. <laughs> For that, I was grounded for two weeks. Really? <laughs> oh, uh, wow. So, so basically, um, you know, um, there's a lot of a lot of good memories. And I, I stopped flying when I got the first kit and when I signed the loan back then for the flat and now paying for the house. Mm -hmm. But, of course, the vision is there when the house is paid. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. And, and the coolest thing is my son is now a big airplane fan. And so everything I want to do, I currently can take my my son as an excuse. So for Christmas, we bought stick, pedals, and throttles. <laughs> and uh, maybe I can use him as excuse again to start flying again. <laughs> we would love to talk to you over and over and so continue. But I think this is a good ending sequence i think if you have anything else you would like to give to the students anything you'd like to address to them you have still have the opportunity um else we would end the episode here what do you say so i thank you very much for the opportunity i didn't prepare anything specific i was happy uh here 
to talk to you. And uh, if the students have questions or would like to talk to me, then feel free to grab me after the lecture. Because as I said, the students are the most important thing for me in this job. And so don't let me go. Don't write me an email. It's more than, <laughs> it's more than 150 a day, but grabbing me after the lecture is always a good idea. That's very nice. Thank you guys for listening and stay strapped for the next episode. Thank you.